uh, Joshua 15, and I will be reading from verses 13 through 19, followed by a passage in chapter 17. According to the commandments of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Abra was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shashi and Ihaman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and catches, captures it, of him will I give Aksa, my daughter, his wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, his wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of Negev, give me the, also the springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And our next passage is from chapter 17. Then a lot was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To make here the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were a lot of Gilead and Basham. But he was a man of war. I realize that I have not uh, written down properly the, the verses. Actually, we're going to start at three. Um, trust me, it's better if I skip this. Now Zelphilhad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Malahi, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. They approached Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions beside the land of Gilead and Basham, which is on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. So I wanted to return to the book of Joshua. Uh, you know, we, we at uh, Resurrection Church uh, believe that the uh, entire scripture is giving to us, uh, even, so, even though that sometimes it's difficult. And uh, this is certainly from a difficult part of Joshua. Um, but I did want to uh, close this out. Now, if you remember, if we think back to when we were talking about Joshua, I just want to hit on some themes that we've been talking about just to set this up. If you remember, part of what I said uh, makes the book of Joshua so fascinating is it's like chock full of contradictions. On the surface, Joshua seems to be a simple story of the Israelites winning victory after victory uh, over the Canaanites because of their obedience to God and the law that was given to them in Deuteronomy. Yet, uh, behind this simple story of uh, patriotic conquest, it would actually be at home in any ancient Near Eastern uh, culture's origin story. Uh, that would form their kind of their legendary epic. We know there's all these epics uh, 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 back in the old days about how their great heroes were able to, uh, you know, create this great civilization that they are a part of. But behind that simple story that we usually come across is a more complex one. Almost every assumption of how I've described the book of Joshua is challenged by the book itself. In fact, if we read Joshua, we find that Joshua refuses any attempt to fit into this simplistic, nationalist, patriotic story that on the surface it appears to be. 
take for example one key scene in Joshua. So uh, there, there, there's something, it's probably the most fascinating part. Uh, when I was doing the series, this is what I, I thought was uh, most excited to talk about. In Joshua 5, uh, we have an encounter between their legendary heroic leader, Joshua. Okay, So he's kind of the star of this book. That's why the book's named after him, of course. And he meets the divine messenger of his God, Yahweh. Now, this is like typeset for, you know, exactly, you, you, you kind of expect what's going to happen here. The, the God is going to say, you're on my side, and Joshua's going to say, I'm on your side. Let's go take those Canaanites. But that's not what happens. Uh, so when Joshua sees this angelic messenger who has the sword drawn, he asks the man a question. He doesn't recognize him. He says, are you for Israel or are you against Israel? In other words, are you a friend or are you a foe? And the divine messenger, despite revealing himself as the commander of God's army, answers, no. It's kind of, it's, it's quite the enigmatic response. You would expect that this, uh, this uh, angelic being is going to say, uh, no, I'm on your side. Um, and it's this response, this refusal to take sides or be summed up in a simple category of for or against that, that kind of forms this whole theme of Joshua. Uh, it refuses to give us a simple answer. And so I think this scene is emblematic of the book of Joshua, not only for this reason, but also because it's really a question of identity. Whose side are you on? Ours or the enemies? And Throughout this sermon series, uh, I've been making the, the case that the whole book of Joshua centers on this question of identity. Who is friend? Who is foe? Who's in? Who's out? What does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to be a Canaanite? And in our particular cultural moment, these questions of identity have become a major issue, a major topic of discussion. What does it mean to belong to a particular group of tribe? How do we decide who is in, who is out? How do we maintain community amidst all the divisions that we see? Uh, it's become easier and easier to segregate ourselves into very specific groups. Uh, we divide ourselves on issue of gender, sexuality, social class, politics, theology, religious observance. You know, the list goes on and on. One simply has to drive around Hillsborough. In about 10 minutes, you'll see uh, different flags and different markers of people uh, establishing their identity. Uh, you'll find Confederate flags, MAGA flags, Biden flags, gay pride flags, you know, uh, thank you, Jesus, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, uh, welcome to all, you know, all these sort of things are ways that we mark our identity. And I, I think it's no secret, no one will be surprised and think this is particularly enlightened, uh, but the internet and social media has made it easier to segregate ourselves into very specific categories. And our church has not been immune from these effects. Uh, evangelicalism now is defined more as a political category than a set of religious or theological commitments. The church is more divided than ever as we seek to worship only those who agree with a very defined set of beliefs and commitments. And so the question remains, what should define us? Where do we find our identity? How do we maintain ourselves as a people who are called out with a specific set of beliefs and yet also embrace the wider world? We are called to love our neighbors. We are even called to love our enemies. How do we love both God and our neighbors as Jesus commanded us when those principles sometimes conflict? Uh, 
How do we live out our ethic in a world that is broken and fallen? And the book of Joshua does a good job of contemplating these issues of identity and other contradictions. And it shows us that they're complex and oftentimes they require wisdom rather than simplistic rule following. Trying to force God to answer a simple question only leads to an enigmatic response and a refusal to choose one category over another. To this, God simply answers no. Right at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we see these uh, contradictions playing out in the amazing heroic figure of Rahab. Uh, she's a, Rahab, of course, if you'll recall, was a Canaanite prostitute, but she proves herself to be strong, courageous, resourceful, even God-fearing. Uh, she quoted Deuteronomy, and all throughout her incredible story, she shows herself to be a real Israelite, more so than the other characters in her story. On the other side, we uh, study this, uh, the story of Achan. Uh, the story of Achan begins with uh, this guy, Achan, whose genealogy is given to us, and it lets us know that he's this well-pedigreed uh, Israelite, if we are talking in terms of blood or kinship. Yet Achan uh, uh, does something forbidden. He secretly keeps some of the Canaanite plunder for himself in a battle. And so in doing so, he reveals that he acts more like a Canaanite than an Israelite. So in the book of Joshua, it sets itself up for us. Rahab the Canaanite exhibits the traits of the ideal Israelite, where Achan, who we would think would be an ideal Israelite, desires the thing of Canaan. And taken together, these stories illustrate that being an Israelite cannot be about things that we would normally uh, imagine or the people in the ancient world would imagine would be uh, their identity, ethnicity, kinship, or blood. Uh, these would have been the default markers of identity in the ancient world. And Joshua is challenging that idea. In fact, Joshua uh, seems to be a book about uh, boundaries being broken down. Rahab should not be incorporated into Israel, but she does. She marries an Israelite, and she becomes the ancestor of no less than the future uh, King David. Uh, a boundary here between Israelite and Canaanite is broken. Uh, the Jordan River should be a boundary, but God divides the river temporarily, erasing the boundary between Canaan and the outside world. The walls of Jericho should be a boundary, but God breaks down those walls. In Joshua, we have a God who seems to delight in breaking down boundaries, both real and metaphorical. So that's a bit of a recap of where we've been since it's been a few weeks. Uh, I wanted to kind of, uh, kind of set this up and just remind us of, of kind of the major themes that we've been talking about because it's going to be important as we study this. Now, here's the thing about Joshua. It's broken up into these sections. The first 12 chapters of Joshua, uh, which was what we've been working through, center around the story of the Israelites winning battle and gaining a foothold in the land of Canaan. Uh, they're, they're, they're a little bit more um, story-like. They're a little bit easier to talk about. That is followed by a large section, uh, chapters 13 through 21, which is about the distribution of the land of Canaan among the different tribes. Now, believe it or not, this section of Joshua is even less exciting than I just made it to sound. Okay, It is really, really boring. And it's one of the reasons that I stopped at Joshua and had a, uh, needed a reload before I went on. I'm going to read a short passage from this section just to give you a flavor of what these uh, you know, next eight chapters are like. Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of Gad. 
to the people of Gad according to their clans. The territory was Jezer, and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites to Orar, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramath Mizbah, and Betanim, and from Manahim, to the territory of Debar in the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Sukkoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sahan, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Chinnadeth, eastward from Jordan. Now, after reading that, you may think, well, surely all eight chapters aren't like that. I assure you, they are. Uh, so this is a little challenging section to go through. Uh, but the good news for you is I don't actually intend to preach through all these chapters. However, I wanted to look at a couple of stories in this section because they are related uh, to our theme of identity. Now, what we have is even though it, even as boundaries are being established in the promised land of Canaan among the various tribes of Israel, others are being broken down in some pretty revolutionary ways. So if we look at the first of our passages, we follow up our old friend Caleb. Now, if you remember Caleb, he was the guy who, along with Joshua, was one of the original spies sent into the land of Canaan. Remember, there were 12 spies sent into the land. And 10 of the spies came back and they said, look, this land's awesome, but we don't need to have any part of this. They have like giants living there and their cities all have walls. We can't do this. Uh, and it was only Joshua and this other guy, Caleb, who argued for moving forward because they said, hey, look, it, 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 they may be giants and they may be, have walls, but God told us he was giving us this land. Now, uh, because the Israelites listened to the 10 spies, uh, the Israelites were punished and they were condemned to remain in the wilderness for only 40 years. And only Caleb and Joshua were to be left of that generation to enter Canaan. And so what we find here in this chapter is Caleb taking possession of uh, Hebron, which was the very land where he had been sent as a spy 40 years earlier, and they had encountered the giants. Uh, so Caleb is encountering them again. Uh, they're called the descendants of Anak, but this time Caleb has help. So here's another uh, fun fact about Caleb that's important, Okay. Caleb is introduced in chapter 14 and described as a Kenizzite. Okay, now why is that important? What is a Kenizzite? It's important to us because it means that Caleb is not an Israelite. Caleb's a foreigner. Uh, he's not a native Israelite. The Kenizzites were descendants of the sons of Esau. So Joshua, by introducing Caleb as a Kenizzite, is trying to emphasize the point that while Caleb is related to one of Israel's enemies, he is also becomes the poster boy of what it looks like to be faithful to God. Again, we see someone in this story who is not an Israelite by blood or kinship that is held up as ideal. Caleb's inheritance is also to be uh, uh, is also given an inheritance in the land. In fact, from Judah, which of course became the most important and faithful tribe of Israel. But as the story uh, tells us here, in order to take the land, Caleb needs to take control of this place called Kiriath Sefer, and in order to encourage his capture, he uh, offers his daughter as a prize to the person who takes Kiriath Zephyr. So, uh, you know, i got to say, that's less than ideal. Um, Caleb's daughter here is basically treated as proper to be, to be handed over to another man. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, 
uh, point of where there's consent here, she's simply presented as an object without agency. In fact, her name, Aksa, uh, means something like bracelet or ornament. In other words, her name is given to reinforce this idea that she's an object that can be passed from one to another and worn simply as an adornment. And unfortunately, this was the common view of women in the ancient Near East. They were property. Uh, Caleb's not suggesting anything here that would be out of place in, in, in his world. But still, uh, you know, I think it's a cop-out a lot of times when we say, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't judge history based on today's standards. Uh, you know, if, if we were going to grade this uh, action here on the patriarchy scale of 1 to 10, I would probably give this uh, an 11, okay? But the interesting thing is the story does not end here. Afterwards, a man named Othniel, who, uh, you know, spoiler alert, is going to actually become an important leader in the book of Judges, takes Carius Zafar and is awarded Aksa. And it's at this point where the story starts to take a turn. From now on, the story becomes not about Othniel or Caleb, but it becomes more about Aksa. She urges her husband to, take, to ask for an additional field from her father, Caleb. And interestingly, as the story goes on, it's, it's not Othniel, it's Aksa that actually approaches Caleb and asks for the field. Um, she demands a blessing from her father, uh, Caleb. And this is very similar language to, uh, to when Jacob demanded a uh, blessing from God after he wrestled God in Genesis 32. And so Caleb gives the land to Aksa. But let me make a few points here, because uh, I, I, even though this is a short passage, there, there's, some, there's some things you need to know that make this even more remarkable. First, the big thing here is that it's Aksa, the daughter, that takes the initiative. She begins this passage as an object without agency. However, as the story progresses, all the action is a result of Aksa's plan and decision. In fact, Othniel is, uh, uh, is supplanted in this story, despite being a person that was important in the history of the Israelites. He, he becomes the first judge, almost the ideal judge in the book of Judges. Uh, second, it is Aksa that realizes the importance of this field. The field Aksa asks for has a spring on it, which would be necessary to make the area uh, of her family's inheritance productive. Without this field, the land would be too dry to support her and her family. And it's Aksa that recognizes this. Now, before you think that seems a little obvious, remember that up until this point, the Israelites had been nomads. And it's Aksa who understands that their situation is about to change radically. And it's Aksa that has the wisdom and foresight to prepare appropriately for the new state of affairs. She's undergone a paradigm shift here and uh, where everybody else is still stuck in the old uh, ideas. And finally, notice that Aksa is given the field. It's not Othniel, right? The field's uh, awarded to her. And this is a radical departure for a society where women did not own property because, as we saw at the beginning of the story, they were considered property. This story even begins, like I said, the story even begins with Aksa's property. And it's even more surprising when uh, it, it, we read the background and we understand that Aksa had 15 brothers. So in this story, Aksa has changed the way things work. And this story is actually set up to hit us over the head and see this change. 
But that's uh, not the only story here where something like this happened. The change is further developed by a later story in the same section of Joshua uh, that centers around this exciting subject of land distribution. In our second passage, we learn about a man named Zelophehad. And he can trace his family tree through a series of men all the way back to no less than one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh. However, we also learn that Selphahad had no sons, but rather five daughters. In fact, the names of all five of Zelophehad's daughters are given to us in this passage. Now, these five women approached the leaders of Israel, uh, including uh, Eleazar the priest and Joshua and all the other leaders of Israel, and they asked for the land that was allotted to their father, Zelophehad. Now, here's the big problem according to Deuteronomy. Land was to be given to the son, with the eldest son given a double share. There was no mention in Deuteronomy of daughters owning land. At best, we can say that the Deuteronomy is silent about whether women can own land, and at worst, Deuteronomy actually forbids it. However, notice what it says in verse 4. The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with his brothers. You see, this, the daughters are claiming the land based on a prior command given to Moses by God himself. And we actually can find this account of this command of God to Moses to give these daughters of Zelophehad the land back in uh, the book of Numbers 27. In this passage from Numbers, we learn that Zelophehad had actually died in the wilderness before the events of Joshua. And the daughters realized that what that means is that they would have no share of the land. And so they went to Moses, and they went to the leaders of Israel, and they pled their case. And when we read the passage, it implies, it doesn't come out and say it, but it does imply that the, the request would have been denied by the leadership. However, Moses actually goes and brings the case to God. And God says, the daughters of Zelphalot are right. They should have an inheritance. So here, right at the beginning of the settlement of Canaan, uh, the goal of the which which had been the goal of the Israelites since leaving the Egypt in Exodus, we have a precedent established where women claim their own right to their own blessing in the Promised Land, and that's much more than about owning land. Because here's the thing: if you own land, you're a full Israelite. You're a full Israelite under the law legally, and you're not an object or property. If you'll notice, uh, if you look at the beginning, the passage begins by naming the five sons of Manasseh, and then it ends naming the five daughters of Zelphadad. And that's a purposeful choice by the author of Joshua to illustrate the equivalency of the five daughters to their male ancestors. Three times in the passage even, because like I said, Joshua wants to hit us over the head with it. It is specifically stated that the daughters receive an inheritance along with his sons. Because Joshua doesn't want us to miss the importance. And what that means here is that another boundary of a series of a bunch of boundaries has been broken down in Joshua. And what Joshua wants us to know is that the identity of an Israelite is no longer about gender any more than it is about blood or kinship. Here the book of Joshua is subverting the patriarchal network by which property was legitimized and transferred which is like super interesting when we consider it started with the giving away of a daughter of property as property, which of course we rated 11 on the patriarchy scale. Again, we find the book of Joshua delighting in challenging ancient ideas of who was in and who was out. 
And the effect of both these subversions of typical uh, identity markers is to make Israel more inclusive, as the boundaries are erased. The breaking down of these boundaries means that people like Rahab, people like uh, another Canaanite group that we read about, the Gibeonites, people like Caleb, and now women, are fully part of Israel. And, and that means that their ethnicity and gender doesn't define their identity. Notice how subtly the author works. Joshua begins with a single exception in the case of Rahab that expands the same principle in the case of a whole tribe of the Gibeonites. Both Rahab and the Gibeonites were Canaanites, but uh, Israel made oaths to them and they were included. And here too, we have an expansion to a land given to one daughter who had been given it as a prize for a military victory. And then another story where the whole family is given a huge portion of land based solely on their claim of fairness. It's like Joshua keeps sticking a foot in the door only later to totally blow the door off its hinges, leading to more justice and more equality. And what we learn in Joshua, and the whole point that I've been trying to establish here, is that Joshua is kind of continuing the goal of Israel. The goal of Israel, in a very fundamental sense, is to expand its boundaries. And these stories... The boundaries are extended not just in an abstract way, but in a very real and tangible way, centering around the land itself. In these stories, we see the expansion of Israelite identity is the goal. Israel was blessed, not in its end to itself, but to, mean, uh, but to be a means of blessing to the others. Remember back uh, in my favorite verse from Genesis, Abraham has, is blessed so that he may be a blessing to others. That's why he was called out and given all the promises. Because the plan God always had for Israel was not just to take a people and give them a land. That wasn't the point. The goal was no less than to create a new humanity who would solve the problems of the world. Abraham and his descendants will be, were, were to be the answer to the corruption of humanity that had started way back in Genesis a world that Genesis had described as racked by division uh, that leads to violence and oppression. Abraham is to be that answer, bringing real life-giving blessing to the world. Uh, a kingdom of shalom, of peace, where justice to the vulnerable is upheld. The dignity of all is recognized and harmony is created among God, humanity, and nature. And it's this trajectory that begins in Joshua that's going to be taken up by the prophets. As Micah tells us, what is good and what is required is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And ultimately, this principle is revealed, illustrated, and epitomized in the life of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who expands the borders of inclusion to women, the foreigners, lepers, the sick, the excluded, and all the other categories that create division. It's like almost like uh, uh, we see Joshua happening again in Jesus' ministry as he breaks down barrier after barrier. And it's one of the reasons that Jesus got into trouble with the religious leadership. So what does this mean for us in the 21st century? Like the Israelites, we as the church must understand that the great blessings we receive from our faith cannot be an end into itself. We can't just see the goal of our religious life as fire insurance to keep us out of hell and go to heaven. That can't be the end of it. It wasn't about Israel simply getting the land. Led by Jesus in his life, 
what we must seek to redraw the lines in our own society, to expand the boundaries, to seek justice for those on the margins, to uphold the weak, to create a world that in the Old Testament is characterized by this idea of shalom and that is called by Jesus the kingdom of God. Read the Sermon in the Mount and you'll see that how this works. As Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not like those of this world. Christ's kingdom is far more beautiful. And it is our job as Christ's followers and the church to show the empires of the world what the kingdom looks like by breaking down these boundaries and embracing a world of shalom. Whereas Paul tells us there is no Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus and therefore heirs.